Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Deere, the intern for biblical counseling. Today's episode is a special release where Reverend Squires will be joined by Dr. Tom Barbian. Dr. Barbian is the executive director of the Christian Counseling Center here in Columbia, and Dr. Barbian and Reverend Squires were recently the dual speakers for our Better Together Marriage Conference this past April 23rd. Today, they're going to address the questions and answers that we did not get to on the night of our conference. After a brief recap of the content, Reverend Squires and Dr. Barbian will focus on questions that deal with the health of marriage, conflict in marriage, and boundaries in marriage, all from a biblical perspective. If you have any comments or questions about our show, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org or download our app. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Well, welcome back to 1A. Josh Adair is not with me this particular episode, but don't worry, he hasn't left us yet. He's just at school. Also, don't worry, it doesn't mean that you're going to get a monotone episode with me opining all by myself. I have a guest, and my guest today is the director of our counseling center, the one who was with me graciously as we did a marriage conference just a week ago or so as we're recording this. Dr. Tom Barbian. Dr. Barbian, thank you so much for being with well, me. Well, glad to be here, Josh. Glad to uh, continue the conversation that we started uh, last Friday. Indeed. So we had had a plan to do a Q&A format through a panel discussion during Sunday school. Extenuating circumstances, we weren't able to do that. And then we had tried to do some Q&A at the end of each of our session. Our last session ran long. And it turns out most of the questions that began to come came through that last session. So this is our way of trying to answer some of the questions that came through uh, on this podcast. Before we get to the questions, why don't I maybe just overview what our sessions were and the question we were trying to answer for people. Yeah, good idea. So we had two sessions. In the first session, we were talking about when other priorities other than your family end up becoming a priority for you. We called it losing focus when job and family uh, and others become more important than your marriage. This is probably one of the most common general things that I see in marriages that get people to a marriage where there's high contentiousness and they're just disconnected is that not by any intentionality of their own, but just by life circumstance, they begin to deprioritize and deprioritize the marriage. And then they end up being married to an effective stranger or to somebody who actually ends up feeling like their enemy. And so we wanted to talk about what are some of the goods of those things like work and like family, kids specifically, and yet the priority that marriage was supposed to take for us so that we didn't end up in those disconnected places? Yes, and I think part of that too was the idea that naturally these things are going to pull us away. Right. And it, uh, that doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong when they do pull us away. It, it actually takes intentional effort to stay connected, to stay strong in our marriages. And part of that we talked about was having a vision for what we wanted our marriages to look like and to be able to hold on to that vision in the storm of life wanting to pull us away from that. That's right. So many people do marriage by happenstance rather than by intentionality and plan. Exactly, right. And and it's easy, and some people can do that, but it's so easy to find yourself shipwrecked when you don't have a plan. One of my dad's favorite lines was, a plan is only something from which to deviate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and which is absolutely true, but you need a plan in order to know that you're deviating. Otherwise, you find yourself on the kind of rocky shore and not even know it. Right. So that was the first one. It was much more general. Our second session was really more laser-focused on the season in which we have found ourselves this past year or so, and we called it running on empty. And that's because I personally have seen, and I don't know if you've seen this as well, Dr. Barbian, more and more people who are anxious, afraid, exhausted, coming out of 2020 in this COVID season, and how that's having an effect on marriages and families. Yeah, it's like you said uh, Friday night, The we were already busy. We were yeah. already stressed. And in a lot of ways, this last year of COVID is 
has been like the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And a, a stressor like other stressors that we could have weathered, except most of us were, were pretty much at our limit. We had full cup as yeah. it was. That's right. No margin for bringing on something like a pandemic. Or teaching your kids via Zoom at home. Right. Absolutely. I know our kids all, when they came home, uh, and my wife, too, was doing work from home, our house wasn't set up to have six separate spaces. Right. For people to be able to do virtual work. Our internet wasn't, we had to upgrade our internet twice yeah. over the summer to get enough bandwidth for everybody that was working from home. And it was just all little things like that that just piled up that no one had the extra bandwidth for. Well, and then the other thing that it was huge was the social disconnection. I mean, yeah. we are created to live in community and, and for many of us, our sense of community was really shut down. We, we didn't have access to those most important to us like we commonly do. So left yeah. us alone and sometimes left us with maybe just a spouse who, yeah. if that relationship was, was struggling now, here we are with a lot of time together trying to support each other through something that is yeah. very difficult. Yeah. And I think that social aspect is so important. Not only is it our social support, which is absolutely right, but oftentimes inside of scripture and in our lives, when we're able to focus on others, not ourselves to serve others, the, uh, one of the illustrations I was making was the flood when it happened, we were all able to rally around one another. Even those who had been affected by the flood also helped other people who had been affected. Right. If they got in their homes and helped tear down damp drywall, whatever it is, but you're working to support one another, that builds the community. It helps you to stop looking at your own self and your own distress. And instead, in this season, what we were told was, don't be around anybody else. We need you to isolate which got everybody looking inward a whole bunch. So it was the support function and it was the serving function that both got cut out from underneath us in the midst of this terrible season that none of us had the bandwidth to, to take on in the first place. Yeah. And some of us were really forced to look at both ourselves and our relationships, you know, and, and really to evaluate, you know, the health because it, it showed up pretty quickly for many of us. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's kind of an overview of what we did in the marriage conference. If you want to hear it specifically, you can go find that on our YouTube channel. I believe that there was a problem with the audio and our guys have been working to try and clean that up. So if you tried to listen to it and for whatever reason it was too quiet or you weren't able to check back in on it occasionally, see if they've been able to clean that up and amplify the voice without, you know, muddying things too much. Hopefully we'll get that to you guys. Okay, so now let's get to the questions. And you just brought up health and talking about us trying to get through and out of this season in a way in which we are healthy when a lot of us had unhealthy habits. So one of the questions uh, says, one fact mentioned in the first talk was the importance of the health of both married partners to help build a thriving marriage. Could you speak more to that? For example, what do you do in our current situation if neither spouse is in a healthy place? And could you define what a place of health actually looks like? Yeah. You know, I, this is one of the things that I talk with couples as well as individuals about quite a bit. You know, Scripture tells us, God calls us to focus on living well for him, being healthy. He's in a process of redeeming us to be more and more the humans, the, the man, the woman that he created me to be. And so my first look, it sounds a, a little counterintuitive, but my first look has to be inward. Am I living out of that place of scriptural principles that God has asked me to look out of? Because I, I can only bring what I have within me. And so, you know, the importance there is that I have to be focused on, am I Am I living healthy? Am I loving well? Am I managing my emotions? Am I self-regulating? Am I really trying to live out and practice the fruits of the Spirit and live a day at a time? Uh, do I have a healthy sense of, of boundaries of what belongs to me that I'm called to manage and what belongs to other people that I get to surrender and let them, with God's help, manage themselves? And so, you know, that's some of what health looks like. Um, and I guess the, the simple answer to the question is, uh, if neither spouse is in a place of health, then I think it's incumbent upon both to start with, what do I have to change so I can show up as a better husband, so I can show up as a better wife? Right. Um, trying to take ownership of what are my weaknesses, what are my my struggles, my sin patterns, my defects that are, are getting in the way. Let me take ownership of those. Let me develop a strategy to work on those 
so that I can become a healthy person. And then I'm going to let you do the same. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, again, Scripture gives you a general pattern of what health looks like. It's not all just the fruit of the Spirit, but that's one picture of what health looks like. Love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, joy, peace, patience. And those are really difficult. And if instead of exuding those, not perfectly, not all the time, but generally. And here, oftentimes, I talk about the difference between climate and weather. The climate of South Carolina, especially Columbia, is hot all the time. But we might have individual instances of the weather of cold. Mm -hmm. And so if our climate is that of joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, that's what we're looking for. Though there might be individual instances of frustration and anger and, and whatever that we might need to repent for if we've done that against our spouse or children. But generally, it's healthy if the climate exudes those things. If instead, on the opposite side, we have individual instances of joy, but our climate is one of reactivity, of frustration and anger, of yelling, of inward selfishness and and self-desire, that's the place where I would say, okay, that's probably the time for you to begin to look at how do I move more towards the call to which Christ is calling me as a spouse. And there are multiple avenues there. And if it's getting people in your life around you, like a mentor or something like that to help you understand family members, if you see them doing marriage well and you want to approach them and they have an intimate look inside of your life and know you more across the lifespan, if it's professional resources like our counseling center or a pastor or someone else who can come in and speak or professional resources that aren't even necessarily one-on-one, if it's a, a book or a video series or a Bible study or something that really is helping me to more and more focus on living up to my call as a Christian spouse then I want to be able to get on that particular road. Also, a lot of listening, listening to your spouse and to others as they try to help you understand what what do they see in you and what's creating or driving some of this so that you can begin to attack some of it. So those would be some of the places where I would say there's, there's where the Bible paints a picture. And again, it, it, it's not all the fruit of the Spirit. It's just one of the lists that you can look at. Um, Colossians, th- uh, Colossians 1 is another one that you can look at uh, that has a similar list th- that just helps us understand what is, it that, what is it that health looks like even in a marriage. Yeah, Scripture talks a lot about humility, that, that, that God asks us to humble ourselves. Uh, and, and in my mind, that really connects with ownership. Am, am I willing to... Mm-hmm to look at myself and say, yeah, I have some areas of struggle. Let me own those. I use that word a lot, but let me take a hold of those, acknowledge those, and then be willing to work at it. You know, you brought up another area of that can become unhealth, you know, is when we're not balancing our various callings, you know, and you talked about the fact that, you know, we're called to marriage. We're also called to parent. We're also called to work. We're also called to uh, be part of the fellowship of believers. Yeah. And if those things get out of balance, yeah. you know, that's a, an aspect of unhealth that will her- impact the people around me, including my spouse. Right. If I'm not, if I don't have a good work-life balance, if I'm devoting too much time to the kids and and not taking care of other things. So having that balance of the various callings in my life. And then <clears throat> I really appreciated you bringing in the idea of idolatry yeah. to not let the good thing become what I'm looking for to be the ultimate thing, the ultimate right. satisfier. Because right. Well, God designed work and kids and, and ministry to give us a certain amount of satisfaction. They're not the ultimate satisfiers, you right. know, and we can make them into the ultimate thing. Right. And it's so easy for our hearts to go there, and, and, and it's so insidious. It happens over a period of time where we're getting usually a lot of identity and value out of those things, which we're designed for. Mm-hmm. But things at home are hard, or things in the marriage are hard, or maybe not even hard, just static. Yeah. And and all of a sudden more and more we find our joy and our identity there than we do in our marriages. And it's it's just making sure again it it it's a good thing that we have to constantly look at to make sure it doesn't ascend to the throne to become a god thing. Well, it's it's like that old saying about the frog at the pot of water, you know. That's right. You throw him in and he jumps out cuz it's boiling, but right. if you put him in there and slowly increase the heat, and that's what happens when we slowly incrementally yeah. find ourselves in a place we've never started. And I'm wondering if I can bridge to one of the next questions here, sure. Josh. And that was a question about viewing your spouse as an ally and yeah. not an enemy. Yeah. And 
the idea there on, on a very basic level is that's positional, not necessarily. It's like the weather climate thing you talked yeah. about. I may any, at any day not feel like I'm your ally, but yeah. we start out in our marriage with the viewpoint, I am your ally and you are mine. And that's the basic starting place, even if yeah. in any interaction it doesn't feel that way. And so if one of us is out of balance with work and parenting and, 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 and all that, I recognize you are still on my team. You are still yeah. my ally. And as we approach trying to correct that, it is two people together supporting each other, working towards the same goal, you yeah. know, so that that's a basic foundational position that we in a marriage are allies and not in opposition to each other, not enemies. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a question that someone sent in about how we distinguish between normal conflict in marriage, because all marriages will certainly have conflict. There's, there's no such thing as a conflict-free marriage. Well, there's no way two people can be in a relationship and not at some point have a difference of opinion. Conflict is inevitable. Absolutely. I get mad at myself. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, if but, I get mad at myself, if my own sinful desires make me angry at me, mm-hmm. how can I be married to another sinner and never get mad at right. them? That It is so inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we are often so surprised when it comes up. So one uh, person asked, what's the difference between normal conflict and unhealthy conflict? One of the things that I often talk about here with my couples is the difference between a throw, a show, and a share. And I forget who came up with that language and where I first heard it. I want to say it was Jim Hurley. Uh, He was the kind of program head for my MFT but often talks about the difference between what couples tend to do. You've got an issue in the middle and we're throwing most of our energy and most of it slams into each other. So whatever we're arguing about, if it's like what we're having for dinner or why you made arrangements for us to go out tonight when I wanted to stay home or whatever, they're, they're actually just little expressions over grander things. And most of our energies come at each other, making accusations and defenses rather than actually coming to the issue. And so if your conflict is a conflict in which there's a lot of criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling, those sort of uh, activities that are more towards the person than towards the issue, it's a sign that your conflict is unhealthy. To go from a throw to a show, a show is more informational. Here is what is going on. You made these plans and you didn't uh, check in with me first. Let's talk about that particular issue. But it's not vulnerable. It doesn't actually talk about my experience. It doesn't talk about my desires. Then to move to the share, which is I really wanted us to have a quiet evening together, just you and I, and I wanted us to be connected, and I didn't want to go out and see other people, and it's been a tough week. That is the ultimate move that shows the ability to own one's own uh, emotions, desires, desires, to be vulnerable, to not use it to create accusation. That's the place where I want to get people to that shows, and really, the psalmists, they do this par excellence. They, they, at times, you can see Psalm 88, where someone feels like the Lord has put them in a place where darkness is their only friend. They don't throw that at the Lord. They don't cast accusations at God for that. It's not just informational. It is genuinely a look at their heart. Um, and so, good, positive conflict allows us to see each other's heart, and after conflict, we feel closer together than we do further apart. In the midst of conflict, it's terrible for everybody. There's no conflict that I know of where people are like, yay, conflict. Um, But once we've begun to recover, we've actually talked about it, you've genuinely known me, and we feel more intimate, not less intimate. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of healthy versus unhealthy conflict is most conflicts really are a problem that needs a solution. You know, we... We desire something different. We have a different opinion. Uh, we want to go in different directions, and we have to have a solution to that. And when we make the conflict about each other, yeah, you know, and about the other person being the problem, we've now shifted the problem from outside to into the relationship, and right. and that's when conflict can become unhealthy because now we're fighting about what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me, as opposed to we just have a problem here. Let's try and come up with a solution that works best for both of us and and whatever the details of that are. And so trying to keep the conflict, not about the person, but about the issue at hand is, is, is an important distinction there too. Right. 
And and one of the questions that we got kind of in multiple different ways is, what do you do when you guys aren't on the same page in conflict? How do you get onto the same page? And I think that goes directly to that particular question. Like you have to have certain commitments that we're not going to cast aspersions. We're not going to get into character assassination. What we're going to try and do is identify what is the issue here. And then together we're going to, as best we can, understand each other's position and then come up with some solution that we think is workable for the both of us. Yeah. And sometimes that page metaphor, you know, the same page, it it almost feels like, well, we either got to get on my page or we got to get on your page as opposed to, well, maybe there's a third page that takes something from each of our pages and we, and we come up with that together. I mean, that's the most elegant resolution to any conflict is when we, we can combine and we can come up with a solution that was better than either what either of us had together. Yeah. Talked in the uh, conference about the goal of win-win because even when I feel like I've let go of something I wanted, I'm still winning because I'm building that intimacy and that connection with you. Yeah. And so I may give up something that reasonably I can do at the very same time. What I'm gaining in that is connection, is intimacy, is, um, you know, moving forward with the same purpose. And, and so I benefit by letting go sometimes. Yeah. And I think that intimacy concept is, is really big. For some listeners, they'll know that that's what my dissertation topic is on. I'm just now really diving into this research. But one of the questions that got asked is, is how does one issue that you can't get on the same page or get on track with each other blossom and mushroom into a bigger thing? And I think that it's when it begins to attack intimacy. It begins to attack connectedness. I don't feel like you understand me. I don't think you understand why this issue is important to me. And it begins to undermine my safety and security with you, my connection with you, and my ability to trust you. John Gottman, one of my favorite you know, marriage and family therapy researcher guys, his research tends to be a little bit more hard science um, and therefore a little more trustworthy. Um, he talks about trust being the currency upon which all relationships trade. And I think that's a really good saying. Um and defines trust in a really helpful way. And I think I've said it on this podcast multiple times, but trust being knowing you are for me even when it costs you. And so in the midst of conflict, oftentimes I do not get the sense that you're for me even when it costs you if you don't understand me and understand my fears and vulnerabilities. And therefore it erodes trust and it erodes intimacy. And so while the issue may be a very small issue, it's an issue of like, you know, are we... Uh, going out tonight or how are we using this amount of money or whatever, it actually goes to a much more fundamental part of what it means to be two connected sinners trying to make our way in this fallen world. A couple other things about conflict. One is that when, when it's particularly challenging to resolve um, and we, when we fall into that temptation of making it about the other person, the the very next step from there is case building, you know, and, You know, you are having this position because you are, and then I start building a case against you. Um, and the problem with that is that, that that tends to move on, you know, into the future, day after day. You know, where mm. what, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Matthew 6, where Jesus asks us, why do you worry about tomorrow? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, there he's talking about thinking about, am I going to be provided for? Yeah, material content. Yeah, but yeah. the reality is each day does have enough trouble of its yeah. own. And... You know, when a couple can put brackets on a conflict, okay, it had a beginning and an end, and now it's done, yeah. and, and we're okay with each other. Yeah. But when the conflicts get carried forward day after day after day, and I'm building a case of why you're not, why you're my enemy, yeah. that's when conflict turns unhealthy because there's just no end. What, what we argued about last Friday is still a problem two weeks later. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It reminds me of First Corinthians 13, of course, love keeps no list of wrongs. And the reason that's true is because God doesn't do that for us. Like right. in the gospel, we have been forgiven and we've been forgiven of all the things. God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. God loves us and therefore Jesus dies for, for us. Right. And that's a really big concept to get in the right order that we might understand. Like his love for us is so great, he's willing to do this. And that thing does then wipe away all of the wrongs as he looks down upon us. He doesn't think, oh, there Josh goes again. Because we do each and every one of us sin and and thought and word and deed every day and tend to sin in similar ways as we did yesterday. Mm -hmm. If God kept that list, he would be so disappointed. 
he, there is no way he could look down upon us with a divine favor that he looks down upon us. So as we try to not keep that list, as we try to wipe away and challenge our mind and heart not to ruminate on the wrongs that our spouse has done in the past, all we're doing is trying to reflect a love that looks very Christ-like rather than listening to our own thoughts and our own fears really is what it comes down to. And here's where the individual health comes in because when there's been a conflict and there's been bumping up against each other and maybe some sore feelings, you know, I, I have to realize it's my responsibility to go back and make amends and, and make a repair uh, to the emotional connection. Whether my spouse approaches me or not, it's my job to seek out yeah. and go apologize. Um, and, and, and that's me being healthy. If I wait for the other person, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize after they apologize. Now, you know, that's into that unhealth. I'm holding on to resentment. I'm, I'm putting up a, you know, a, a bit of a barrier here because I'm, I'm not going to be vulnerable until you apologize to me. And, right. and that's when conflict begins to get unhealthy because now it's, it's creating a whole new set of problems and wounds. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, I'll talk to my couples about uh, cycles of isolation versus cycles of in- intimacy. Mm-hmm. And how scripture is really calling us to cycles of intimacy. And one of the ways that it does that is through the splinter and log mentality. That even if I think it's 95% your fault and only 5% mine, I'm to own my 5%, be deeply grieved over it, and take an axe to that particular sin Mm -hmm. and kill it. Mm -hmm. And you're to see that in me. Whether or not you own your 95%, whether or not you return in kind is not on me. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. If this is game theory, I'll do it if you'll do it, we're both going to end up really frustrated and alone. If I do it because I'm called to do it, because I'm willing to do that for you, you will find yourself in cycles of intimacy that are tough, but yield connection and vulnerability and trust. I see a couple struggle in what you're saying because the the thinking goes, if I've got a, I don't trust God that he's going to convict you of your 95% right? and get you to repent of that and change. And so, because I don't trust him to do it, I feel like I've got to do it, whether that's, that's right. argue with you about it or build a wall around, around me. Yeah. And really it requires saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm mm-hmm. going to own mine, apologize, make amends, do the work of changing. And I'm just going to trust that you're going to do that work in my spouse. And, and I'm powerless. I got to let that go. And wow, that's, that's vulnerable right there. It is incredibly vulnerable. I will say experientially, we all sin and we all have patterns of sin. So I'm so thankful for a wife that isn't through with me when I sin again, the way that I sinned in the, yeah. in the past. And yet experientially, when I'm willing to own my percentage and really give what I think is her percentage to the Lord, that yields conviction mm-hmm. so much more readily. Like, and I can't even, I don't, I can't count the number of times that my wife will come back to me two days later, three days later, and be like, I was just really convicted that I've been doing this lately. I'm so sorry. Right. And it's like, Lord, thank you. Yeah. You know, and just to be clear with the listeners, I am wrong 95% of the time, and <laughs> Melanie is wrong 5% of the time, so it's really inverted here. Um, but it it is much more effective when I give it over to the hands of the Lord and the Holy Spirit as it both convicts her and as it builds my faith. What right. an incredible engine that is. Yeah. Versus when I feel compelled to convict her on my own and case build, like you right. were talking earlier. No, there was this time and this time and this time and this time and this time. And that rarely works. Right. Uh, it only shuts them down, gets them defensive. And so it's a it's an act of faith and trust in the Lord. I'm going to own my part. If they don't own theirs, I trust you, Lord. You will deal with them. And frankly, if I'm honest with myself, God is going to do a better job of convincing them than I could ever do. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Okay, so I think that is that wraps up some of the questions that we had on enemies versus allies. Um, let's maybe go to the section on boundaries and, and talk about boundaries because this is an issue I think that for Christians, they really struggle with. Mm-hmm. I think that they think that the one flesh union means no distinction. The two cease to be one. The, the two cease to be one. That is correct. Uh, uh, the, the, the one means the cease of the two. Yeah. Yeah, there and, you go. One yeah, means, yeah. Yeah. 
And, and that's not genuinely what it means. Uh, if, if you look, and this is one of the reasons that I brought up that the Hebrew for uh, helper fit, that the adjective is fit for Adam, is actually in his opposite. That, that's what the preposition means. There's, there's a complementarity that means distinction and yet comes together to create wholeness. Eve was going to be Eve with her dispositions and personality, and Adam was going to be Adam with his dispositions and personality, and it is the coming together of those two distinctions that equal the united whole, and yet Eve is, doesn't become Adam, and Adam doesn't become Eve. Right. In the same way that Paul will use this distinction to talk about the one body that is the church, and he will say an eye is an eye, and a foot is a foot. Right. There is distinction, though we are all parts of one body, there is distinction in that one body. It is unity and diversity all in one. And that is a very difficult thing for people to keep in tension, and I get that. But in our, I think, conservative circles, we overemphasize the unity at times to the um, destruction of the idea of distinctiveness. Well, and I think sometimes couples get the erroneous idea that if we really have a healthy, godly, biblical marriage, then we won't ever have a different opinion. We will, because we're one now and right. we're united in Christ, we're going to think and want and feel and do the same thing all the time. And that's right. just, like you said, it's no different than the body analogy that Paul uses. I mean, a foot is going to be a foot and a hand is going to be a hand and they aren't going to be the same and, yeah. and they are going to coexist together in a, in a, a beautiful unity if they're each being what they are. That's right. And you know, the fact that God created us male and female means there was an intention on his purpose that we would bring different things to the relationship and we would not cease to be male and female and become something different with marriage. Right, right. Oftentimes people ask, okay, well, what does it mean? What does it look like practically then to have boundaries inside of marriage? I'm interested in what you might uh, give as your example. For me, when when this gets asked for couples, for me, the place that my mind immediately goes to is um, being responsible for, or being responsible to, but not for. Yes. So the idea that if I'm in a bad mood, let's put me in the role of the one in a bad mood. My spouse can walk in and see that I'm in a bad mood and respond to my bad mood that says, hey, sweetie, I see you're in a bad mood or I see that you're stressed, or I see that you're upset, is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you in any way? And if my answer is, no, I'm fine, and I'm angry, and I'm frustrated, fine. She can continue to be in her good mood, because right. she had a good day, and continue to go about her day in that way, and I, it's up to me to work through and get out of my bad mood. My bad mood impacts her. It does not infect her. Right. My bad mood does not have to equate to her bad right. mood. She doesn't have to get in a bad mood because you are. That's the boundary, that she's able to be in a different emotional place than you and, and because you're different. There's space between the two of you. That's right. And it, when my emotional mood dictates your emotional mood from um, a more secular perspective is where we would talk about codependency. Mm -hmm. And that sort of emotional codependency ultimately yields exhaustion. Yeah. Because now we both have to be in a good mood and our good mood has to be traveling in the exact same direction in order for our good moods to be sustainable. You know, if my good mood is, is that when I get home, I want to put on my jammies and your good mood is when, you know, my husband gets home, we're going to go out and have a nice dinner and see people. One of us is not going to be in a great mood, yeah. right? And does that mean that now both of us have to be in a bad mood? Well, no, not necessarily. Now, and, and hopefully there's a compromise that you can come to on that particular issue. But nonetheless, you're free to be where you are. You're free to be where you are in a way that tries to lean into and build each other up without becoming what the other one is. Yeah. Let's let's take your earlier example of spouse A comes home and spouse B is in a bad mood. Yep. From a boundaries perspective, spouse A has to do some work around themselves. Okay, I'm going to allow you to be in your bad mood. I've got to deal with my disappointment because I came home hoping you would be in a good mood. And right. now you're not. And I have to deal with my disappointment and my uncertainty, like how long are you going to be in a bad mood? I don't know. But, yeah. but from a boundary standpoint, I have to manage the feelings, the thoughts that come up as I, as I encounter you in your bad mood. Yeah. I have to manage those, which is why boundaries first and foremost is 
looking inward itself, you know, because if I don't manage that disappointment, then I'm going to start nagging you. Why aren't you out of that bad mood yet? You know, and, and that's yep. going to create additional problems. Whereas, okay, it's not how I would like it to be. And I'll be all right. I can, I can give you some space and some time, deal with my disappointment and wait, you that, know. That's right. Uh, I think it's Brett Atkinson who talks about bids for connection. I'm sure he didn't come up with that phraseology. It's just where I encountered it first. But those tiny little micro ways in which we look for connection with one another, if it's a laugh or a, uh, coming home and, and just putting your hand on somebody or whatever, there's dozens of ways in which we express a bid for you to reciprocate in a connectional way. And when you're in a bad mood, all of those get shut down. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, it is 100 micro rejections in your bad mood. Yeah. And now, just like you said, I've got to manage those micro. Does that make my spouse bad and evil? No, it just makes them flawed. <laughs> right. It makes them flawed and it makes them in a bad mood. Yeah. Right. And I can be okay and I can manage myself to keep myself okay. And when they recover, hopefully we'll be able to connect. And that's okay. And, and that really is two individuals, one of whom may be having a righteously understandable bad day. Mm-hmm. Maybe they had a tough day at work or maybe a project's going poorly or, you know, they got some bad news somewhere and they can be in a bad mood. And maybe you are righteously having a good day. Things are going well. Goals are being met. And the person in the good mood can try and support the person in the bad mood without becoming or owning the bad mood. Right. And that's completely okay. Yeah, and that's really important. So when people are, are, are questioning or struggling with boundaries, I think the, the first thing I'd say is that boundaries you know, are first and foremost about managing me. They're not about me managing you. They're, mm-hmm. I have to, to recognize what belongs to me. It's not my job to manipulate, to control, to get you to be a certain way. And so sometimes, though, what a person, if they're not able to manage themselves well, I need you not to be mad. And so, you know, I won't tell you about the call from Johnny's teacher today yeah. because you're going to get angry and I can't deal with being around you when you're angry. Right. And I'm really scared of what you'll say to Johnny in your anger. So I won't tell you about the call from the teacher. And at that point, that's a there's a boundary problem there because I'm trying to control and manage what belongs to you, which is... Yeah. your anger. And I need to be able to just say, Hey, here's what happened. And, and then let you manage whatever frustration you have because Johnny's teacher called. That's right. And I wonder, Dr. Barbian, I grew up in the South. I've only ever operated in the South. So I've not lived in the North or Midwest. I've got family in the Midwest, but I do wonder if this is a particularly Southern thing or if we're as Southerners more prone to this, um, and and if you have any experience with that or, or know, like to own one another's emotions rather than allowing, like, hey, Johnny got a bad grade or a bad report from the teacher, you need to know that, and how you respond is up to you. Well, I think that one of the things I appreciate about Southern culture is the the sensitivity and care for other people, yeah. and and the kindness that is a part of that. But it's like everything else. If it's taken too far, I can let that sensitivity and, and kindness um, go to the point where, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to let you know anything that I think is going to be hard for you to deal with. Because I, I think I'm being kind to you, but am I really being kind or is there some fear that's now getting mixed up in there? And it, and it, and it can be both, both they happen at the same time, and it's sometimes hard to figure that out, pull it apart. Right. Um, Someone asked a question while we're on boundaries about when boundaries change in marriage um, and gave a specific example of like when children, as children get older and they move out of the home and, and uh, should, there, should boundaries morph as financial support and dependence and all of that. Um, for me, that is a particular example of why communication is so necessary. Like, and, and there's no hard and fast rule as such. It's, we, for our family, need to put biblical principles in place. We need to understand, let people know that we're listening, we love, we understand. And now, as boundaries change, let's let everybody kind of have some input, decide what those new boundaries need to be. And then the degree to which we violate those boundaries, let's repent and try to do better in the future. But I don't have a checklist necessarily for 
when boundaries change, this is how you navigate that. Yeah, so there's some principles there that can be helpful. You know, if I think about what is my goal with children and and then with adult children, you know, my job is to work myself out of a job as a parent, you know, to raise uh, adult children who are completely capable of managing their own lives, their own families. And so it isn't a, it isn't a one day you wake up and now they're there. It's a, it's a process. So yeah, boundaries do change as children begin to move out from the home. You know, the idea is you expect them to take on more and more responsibility for self. And to the extent that they do that or don't do that boundaries, you know, may need to come into place. So here's an example of of this. There's always the question of, am I doing for you because you won't, or am I doing for you because you can't? Right. And if you can, but you won't, then I, it's not healthy for you that I do for you. Right. So should I pay that bill for you because you can't? Maybe. Should I pay that bill for you because you don't want to? You'd rather spend that money on partying or, or whatever you're doing that's fun. Yeah. And so I now pay, continue to pay your cell phone bill, you know. And so, yeah. and that just takes an evaluation. And like you say, a, a conversation, you know, I think you are capable of taking on yeah. more expenses. And, and so because you can, I'm going to let you, even if you don't want to. And, and yeah. so that's a one way of kind of sorting that out. How does this thing begin to shift financially? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, those are really good, helpful categories. Okay, so uh, another group of questions that we got was f- that stemmed from our second question as we looked at Paul and Paul's discussion about us changing our heart, head, and hands, what we think, feel, and do. People respond oftentimes in conflict and other times just reactively. It, it's just my native mammalian brain or reptilian brain. Right. Rather. And so the question is, how do we get ourselves? How do we challenge ourselves? Who, how do we reshape those heart patterns to be less reactive and more proactive in grace, mercy, and love? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. Scripture deals with this. Uh, I, we don't always see it right away, but the, the Scripture talks about you know, storing up or hiding within our heart, you know, the word of God, which another way to say that is, you know, part of why I study God's word is so that I can internalize principles of how he wants me to live. And the more I'm working on internalizing those principles, reflecting on them, being mindful of them, trying to put an effort into living out of those, uh, you know, every day, that is what helps my, my mind, my, my, my cognitions, my, the principal part of me, manage the emotional part of me. You know, if I get, if I get triggered into some frustration or some fear, I can't help that, Yeah. but I can do something with it when I'm there. And, but I've got to have something in me to do something with it, you know? So it is about learning and, and, and again, being just mindful and reflective of how do I want to live? How do I want to deal with, you know, and and, a lot of, we have a few things in, in life that happen to us only once, yeah. but a lot of things in life happen often. Multiple times, yeah. Like traffic, like yeah. a kid who won't do what they're told to do, right. you know, like uh, an extra deadline being thrown at me at work that I don't have time to do. I mean, some right. of these things happen over and over, and it's like, am I going to keep tripping over the same thing, or am I going to think it through, spend the time reflecting, yeah. developing some strategies or some ways that I want to handle the emotional response that comes in me when that situation happens? Right, right. Um, this is where I'll often talk about preaching the gospel to myself every yes. single day. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is so important. There's a place in my shower where if my eyes hit that place and I have yet to preach the gospel to myself that day, I just stop and preach the gospel to myself. Right. Why in my shower? I have no idea. It's just, <laughs> it just became the thing. Like before I go on, you're still kind of groggy and like you're just starting to kind of I'm not a morning person, so the shower is where the mind begins to kind of click together. And I think, okay, let me stop and let me just say a prayer that is appreciative for what God in Christ has done for me and who I know myself to be as a fallen sinner in need of his grace and forgiveness. And as I pray that, and it doesn't have to be a five-minute prayer. It can be a 10-second prayer. It, does, it doesn't have to be eloquent. I'm not C.S. Lewis. I'm not trying to sell these anywhere. It's just mm-hmm. between me and the Lord. But steeping my soul regularly in the gospel of grace, I have found genuinely helps my mind and my heart to be ready to act in a way that is gracious and kind. 
Not always. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not the most gracious kind of person all the time, right? I'm still a fallen sinner. But the degree to which I act in a merciful, kind way has increased over the years as I continue to inculcate that habit in my life, as I continue to meditate on God's word and his gospel of grace. And so just being able to have what we might call a script, a gospel narrative that we appropriate to our own lives helps me so that when someone else angers me, when someone else feels like an enemy to me, what I have done earlier in the day is declared that I was an enemy to God and that rather than him acting out of his reactivity, he volitionally chose to behave in a way that led to his own physical and spiritual death that I might be redeemed that I might have grace and mercy. And it just helps me to come from a place of, okay, now is the time for me to be able to act in a similar way for my wife or for my children or coworkers. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that. And this is going to sound like I'm over-spiritualizing, but really I think this is very practical. You know, what? where does my religion fit in? Where does my relationship with God fit in? Is it something that I do for a... A period of time during the day, like right. during my devotional habit, and then and then I put it in a box and I go on. Yeah. Or is it something that is part of me throughout the day? You know, am I in touch, in communication, connected to the Holy Spirit? Is there a spiritual intimacy between me and God that is happening moment by moment through the day? Yeah. You know, I can cultivate that awareness of what is God saying to me, because He's talking to me. Yeah. And he wants to help me in whatever these situations are yeah. as much as I want him to help me. Yeah. But am I listening? Am I am I connected in that way? And, yeah. and it's a struggle. It takes effort to be aware, to be connected to the Holy Spirit, to be mindful of what is God saying and doing in me in the moment. Because he's there yeah. to help, and he's there to help me if I will just connect with him. And, and often it gets, you know, my, my Christianity gets put in, on the shelf when I'm out here working now, or I'm out yeah. here trying to parent the kids, and I'm... It's like I'm like God's not even in the room. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good word. Like we have to have our sense of who we are in Christ integrated into our whole life. Yeah. And not just siloed into when I show up to church or while I'm doing my morning devotionals. And we have the greatest resource in the history of ever. Yeah. We have the Holy Spirit that right. lives inside of us. And never doubt how much strength how much mercy, how much wisdom he can help in that particular moment. Yeah, and I can bring and I and I bring that reality to my marriage. Right. You know, God is right there in the middle of it. Uh, he's right there in the middle of my my arguments with my wife and at any moment, you know, helping me, you know, and willing to speak to me if I can calm down a minute and, and listen to him. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, well, we are coming to the end of our time here together. Tom, any Closing thoughts or comments that you want to make? Anything that we didn't hit that you thought would be wise for us to hit before we wrap up? Well, I'm going to zoom out to big picture. You know, um, marriage is not a, it's not a destiny. It's not like somehow I learn this stuff, I do the work, and then I get to a happily ever after marriage. No, and, and I said this in the conference, and I, I really believe it's true. You know, I'm going to be married as long as God gives my wife and I life. And yeah. as long as I'm married, he's using that marriage to sanctify me, to yeah. change me. And and so seeing that picture of marriage is this is a living, breathing, growing relationship that is helping each of us become healthier individuals. And, and then in that, we become a healthier couple. Yeah. And so it's important because I can get discouraged when, you know, after now almost, you know, in June will be 43 years of marriage, you know, yeah. am I still having that same struggle? Yeah. You know, but... Yeah. No, this is it's a living, breathing thing, and God is working in us and in me. Um, and so I keep that big, balanced picture of marriage. It's easier to fight the discouragement when, oh, here we are in conflict again. Really? Right. Again? <laughs> yep. So Marriage is about our sanctification, not our sac- as satisfaction. Right. And I think that's really important. I heard John Piper one time talk about the most discouraging thing in his life. Um, we were at a writer's conference together in Minnesota, and someone asked him how it was that he was able to make it through Tübingen, the kind of most liberal German school out there where he got his PhD and stay a believer. And he said, there was nothing that I ran into that actually made me question my faith. 
He said, you know what has made me question my faith over these past 60 years? And, of course, we're all like, John Piper questioning his faith? What? What John can make you question your faith? He said, my own sin. Hmm. The fact that I sin in the same ways today that I tended to sin 60 years ago. That's been the biggest thing for me that has been uh, discouraging and disappointing and causes me sometimes to question. If God can be as patient with me through my sins, I should be equally as patient with my spouse in theirs. And this whole thing is not about me being happy and well-satisfied, though there is a lot of joy and contentment in marriage. It's ultimately about me loving the Lord more and knowing Him better. And God did not design us to do marriage apart from Him. Right. You know, He designed it to really be an intimate relationship with each other and with Him in the midst of that. And so marriage is flourish when we allow God to be part of them and to help us with them. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Barbian, for being with me today and taking so much time out of your incredibly busy day to glad answer to questions. Do it. Very glad to do it. I enjoy this. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Dr. Barbian, how can people get a hold of you? Well, uh, the number to the counseling center, uh, 803-779-1995. And you, certainly you can visit our website, uh, it's christiancounseling.ws. Um, it's, uh, we have a website there, and there's more that you can learn about us. That's the best way to, to reach me. Wonderful. So if you have any questions that you'd like to reach out to the Counseling Center, Counseling Center has nearly 20 therapists on staff. They do an incredibly great job. So glad that we have them as an arm of our ministry here. Um, if you're struggling in your marriage or personally, they would be a great resource for you. If for whatever reason you'd like to reach out to me, you can do that at jsquires at firstpresscolumbia.org. That's jsquires at firstpresscolumbia.org, and I'd be happy to hear from you. Hope that this podcast and that our marriage conference as a whole was a blessing to you and those around you. You've been listening to 1A, a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. On behalf of Reverend Squires and Dr. Barbian, thank you for joining us today. If you would like to access or re-watch the Marriage Conference audio and video, you can do so by going to our website at firstpresscolumbia.org forward slash marriage. And then finally, if this content has surfaced a need for professional resources, you can reach out to Reverend Squires or contact the Christian Counseling Center here in Columbia for an appointment. You can call them at 803-799-1995. We're so glad that you joined us today for this important conversation, and we hope that you'll join us again next time.